Well, I'll turn back, please, to that passage we read together earlier in John chapter 6. We have fairly recently at uh, Down finished uh, a series in, in John's Gospel. Um, and when I came to, uh, to this section, this particular passage that we're looking at this morning, which is uh, from verses um, 16 to 21... Um, when I was uh, originally preparing this, which was some time ago now, um, I changed my mind in the, in the middle of that, that preparation. Um, I had thought that I would be focusing on, on Jesus as the bread of life, uh, as that is what, after all, the bulk of this, this chapter is, is all about, isn't it? It follows on naturally from what we read at the beginning uh, of chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, where Jesus fed this enormous crowd of of people with just five loaves uh, and two fish. Uh, But I realised when I was was looking at it that that if I moved straight on to what is often called the the bread of life discourse uh, here in in verse 22 in in the ESV, that I wouldn't have much time to, to talk about Jesus walking on the water. And although it only takes up a few verses, very few verses here in in John's Gospel, far less than if you compare it with uh, with Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, which give it a lot more more space, uh, I decided that I wanted to to slow down a bit and devote, devote a whole sermon to these verses because they were speaking to how I felt and how a lot of the church at Down felt at that time. And I imagine they might feel, or they might speak to how some of you are feeling this morning. I've called this sermon Straining at the Oars, because that is how uh, Mark describes, certainly in the NIV, he describes the disciples in his version of this story. It's a phrase, isn't it, that describes the the disciples literally uh, in their little rowing boat struggling against the wind and the storm. But it describes many of us metaphorically. And it certainly wasn't stretching the text then and perhaps it's not stretching the text today. But it may be how it applies to some of you this morning. You see, very few of us come to church do we, with, with lives that we could describe as plain sailing. You know, it's interesting when you think about it, just how many, how many of those sort of nautical expressions uh, like that have made it into our English language to describe our, our fears and our feeble strength and our frail emotions. For example, we often talk about being out of our depth or being all at sea or feeling anchorless, or feeling rudderless, or as if we were sinking. Perhaps for some of you this morning, as you look out, all is, all is calm and all is quiet on the horizon. In which case, give thanks to God for that. But you and I know that that could change tomorrow. But some of you, perhaps, you are in the middle of a storm. The going is tough 
You're battling to make headway, and to quote verse 18 here, the waters are rough. And so I think it is good for us, if not for you today, then next week, next year, the time will come. It is good for us to pause and to linger on this lake, that we might take stock of what these verses tell us, and so that we can receive the comfort and the assurance that they bring. You see, we might wonder why it is that that John even includes this this story here. Why doesn't he just go from from feeding the 5,000 straight into the bread of life discourse? Now, it's true that it does help explain how it is that Jesus and the disciples ended up on the other side of the lake, But it also makes a more subtle but very important point. You see, John goes from big to small in this chapter. From 5,000 plus out on the hillside to this small boat of his disciples. The story will widen out again uh, to, to, to the crowds in Capernaum in verse 24 and onwards. But for now, the lens has, has narrowed and the focus is much smaller on this tiny group of the Lord's people. But the basic message is the same. That the disciples need Jesus just as much as the crowds did. And Jesus is just as able and willing to meet his disciples' needs as he was the crowds. And that, I think, is a helpful thing for us to remember, especially if you too are straining at the oars. At the heart of this story, of course, we have this storm, don't we? But if we look at it closely... We see that it is a storm that Jesus sends his disciples into, that Jesus sees his disciples struggling in, and that Jesus meets them in the middle of. And it's those three points that I'd like us to explore together with you this morning. Firstly then, the storm that Jesus sends his disciples into. We read here that the disciples got into this boat on their own, leaving Jesus behind. Uh, When I read that first of all, I thought, well, that's why they got into this fix, wasn't it? That they didn't hang around for, for Jesus. They got into this boat on their own. We need to read on. We read back in verse 15 here that Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself. He knew that this crowd wanted to make uh, him king by force, and so he withdrew from them. Jesus didn't want to be pushed uh, into this middle of this uh, unruly mob and to be made uh, a king, for this this uprising to begin against the the Roman authorities that they would proclaim him as their new ruler. Because Jesus is a different sort of king. He's not the one that the crowd wanted to make him. Now we know that the day will come uh, when Jesus will rule over all the nations of the world and over all creation. But for the time being, Jesus' kingdom is spiritual. And you see, the people didn't understand that. You know, Jesus doesn't wield power like an earthly ruler does. 
Instead, his reign is over people's lives by ruling in their hearts. And it's our hearts and our minds that are being renewed daily under his lordship. And likewise, in in the way that Jesus establishes his kingdom is completely different from anything that an earthly ruler would do. You see, Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem, did he, carrying a spear and, and dishing out judgment. Instead, on the cross, he was on the receiving end of a spear and he took our judgment on himself because Jesus is a different sort of king. And so we read here in verse 15 that perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew from them. And so Jesus wasn't with them when they left. In fact, both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus told his disciples to leave. He sent them away to go on ahead of him to Capernaum while he stayed behind to dismiss the crowd. And then we read that he went up on the mountainside to pray. And so the whole reason that the disciples ended up in this storm was because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. The storm came upon them, not as a result of their disobedience, but because they were being faithful. You know, we know that uh, it's true, isn't it, that sometimes we can bring storms, if you like, uh, upon ourselves. We can end up uh, adrift from God and like the disciples here, we can find ourselves in a rough and a, and a dark place because of our own sinful actions and the things that we have decided to do, that we have determined to go our own way. But the disciples here didn't go their own way. They went the way Jesus told them. And it was as, as a result of following him that they found themselves in the middle of the storm. Alistair Begg tells a very helpful story of a, of a man on a, on a boating lake. You, you know the sort of thing, if any of you have ever been to, um, well, Hever Castle has one, if you've been there, or Swanley Park has one. This, this boating lake, you know what it is, that you, you, you pay your money to the man and you, you take out your little rowing boat for, for half an hour or whatever it is, and at the end of that time, uh, he, he blows, calls through his tannoy, and he, he calls you, you back in. Well, Alistair Begg tells the story of how one man went out in his boat and at, how at the end of that time, Uh, The man on the shore called out to him, come in number nine. But no number nine came in. In fact, there was no sign of the the boat at all. Well, perhaps it was one of those lakes that has a little island in the middle and perhaps that the boat was was hidden behind so so the man wasn't too worried on the shore. But a few minutes later, he, he called out again, took his tannoy and he called out, come in number nine. But still no boat number nine appeared. And he did this a few more times. But with still no boat number nine anywhere to be seen, eventually he called out, boat number six, are you in trouble? (laughs) You see, the story raises a laugh. 
But this can often be our experience, can't it? You get into boat number nine, but before you know it, you're in boat number six. Your whole world is turned upside down. But you were just trying to do what Jesus told you to do. You see, if that is us, if that will be you, we are not to despair. It might be that the situation you're in makes you think, I want to change boat. I want to jump ship. But the fact is that sometimes storms come in the path of faithfulness. And sometimes Jesus sends us into them. You know, we might wonder what on earth is going on and how it is that we ended up here, but it is all part of God's loving plan. The hymn says, doesn't it, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You know, someone has said there are lessons for us as believers that we will never ever learn on the still waters because they can only be learned on the rough waters of the storm that we find ourselves in because under God we have tried to be obedient. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. The storm then that Jesus sends us into. The second thing I'd like us to notice is the storm that Jesus sees his disciples struggling in. I don't know if any of you have ever been to to Israel or ever been to the Sea of Galilee, but if you have, or you might generally know that storms come up very quickly on the Sea of Galilee. It's about 600 feet below below sea level, and when the cool air uh, rushes in from from the southeast off, off the plateaus, it displaces the warm air over the lake and it churns up the water. And violent storms are very, very common there, as we know from elsewhere in the Bible, because we have that other occasion, don't we, when Jesus calmed the storm. And on that occasion, he was actually with his disciples in the boat. It's just that he was sleeping while they were panicking. The disciples' experience here reminds us just how quickly our situations can change. From being calm one minute to finding ourselves in the middle of a violent storm the next. I said at the beginning, if, you're, if all is calm on your horizon right now, praise God. But it might not be tomorrow, or it might not be next week. Our situations can change rapidly. But these verses tell us that Jesus sees when his people are struggling. You see, the disciples set off in the evening... Uh, And we learn from from Matthew and from Mark that it was during the fourth watch of the night. That is, it was between three and six o'clock in the morning when Jesus walked out on the water to them. 
In other words, they had been out on the lake for a long time, longer than they had expected. And that's an important point for us to note. They left in the evening, but they were out in the dark, facing the storm alone for longer than they thought they would be. We read here that they had rowed about three or four miles. Uh, That's what it says here, three or four miles. That means that they were out in deep water at this point. And I emphasise that because there are some sceptics who, who, who dispute this, that they, 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 they question whether Jesus actually walked on the water. We always have sceptics, don't we, uh, of the Bible, that anything that is supernatural in the Bible, people try to find rational reasons to, 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 to explain away. And so they say here that this word on the water, well, it should actually be translated by the water meaning that what Jesus was doing is he was actually walking uh, beside the sea. He was walking along the side of the sea, by the seashore, when the disciples saw him. He wasn't on it. Which would mean that Jesus could just wade out to the disciples rather than walking on the water. But we can't accept that, can we? Because these disciples hadn't been hugging the shoreline for the past three miles. Matthew clearly says that the boat was a long way from the land. And Mark emphasises that the boat was in the middle of the lake. And so we should all be in no doubt that this was a miracle. And Jesus really was walking on the water. After all, it's very hard to to understand, is it, why the the disciples would be so terrified if Jesus was just walking by the seashore. But the point I'm making, and the point I want you to notice, is that the water, therefore, was at its deepest, and the night was at its darkest when Jesus walked out to the boat. And that's helpful. I think that is instructive for us when we are being buffeted and we wonder just how long it will be before we have to wait until things will settle down. We read here that the disciples saw Jesus and they were terrified. It wasn't the waves that, that terrified, terrified them. After all, some of these disciples, they were experienced Fishermen, they were used to rough seas. They were terrified when they saw Jesus because they thought he was a ghost. But the important thing that I want us to notice is that Jesus saw the disciples long before they saw Jesus. Their eyes were focused on keeping their heads above water. There's another expression we use, isn't it? Their eyes were focused on keeping their heads above water, but Jesus' eyes were focused on them. Where was Jesus when he saw them? What does this passage tell us that Jesus, where Jesus was when he saw them? Well, Jesus was on the mountain, wasn't he, when he saw them? And what was he doing on the mountain? Well, he was praying. Jesus saw them. And came to them from the place of prayer. They were in the middle of the sea. They were, they were in the eye of the storm. They were out in the darkness. And they thought Jesus was a long way from them. And, and geographically speaking, he was. 
But from heaven's perspective, they were perfectly safe. And that's a comfort to us, isn't it? If you've ever been in that situation where you're in, you're in deep trouble and it's made worse because you can't see Jesus. But he sees us and we are perfectly safe because we have a great high priest who is interceding for us with our heavenly father. What is it we sing before the throne of God above? I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. You see, however strong the storm is that you are in, it is more than matched by Jesus' power. And the power of his prayer. If you're a Christian here this morning, then we know, don't we, that our name is graven on Jesus' hands and written on his heart. I don't know you this morning. I don't know how you've come, what is going on in your lives, what you're passing through. But when all you can see is the storm swirling around you, you need to remember that Christ sees you in the middle of the storm and is praying for you. And that knowledge will help us It will help us to endure the storm and it will help us to be strengthened in it. But that's not all, is it? You know, Jesus' love doesn't stop with what he sees. Because the storm that Jesus sends his disciples into and the storm that he sees them struggling in is also the storm that he meets his disciples in. Jesus not only sees, sorry, not only sends and sees, he also comes. He draws near, we read, approaching the disciples with words of comfort here in verse 20. These words, it is I, can also be translated as, as I am. And to some people, those, those words become very, very significant because they're a reminder of, of God's name The name that he revealed to Moses by the burning bush. I am who I am. It's God's personal name, isn't it? I am. The the name by which he, he can be known. The name Moses was to tell the Israelites to confirm that that God was with them and God really had sent Moses. This is a name that that speaks of God's power. It speaks of him being self sufficient and of being self existent. That he is the one who has always been and will always be. He existed before anything else existed. And so if he is the one who created the seas and commanded them into being, then it's no surprise, is it, that he can also walk on them. Of course, we know that uh, I am in John's Gospel. If you know your John's Gospel, I am is a big thing for John in Gospel. We, in John's Gospel, we have those sayings, don't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am in John's Gospel is, is important. And so these words may be another indication of Jesus here uh, affirming, telling his disciples that he is God. But we also need to recognise that they're very natural words in the Greek. 
The words translated here, it is I, are also the very normal way of saying it's me. Just like you or I might say to someone to reassure them. My dad used to have a key to his parents' uh, house when they were were older so he could just let themselves in. Uh, My nan in particular, she used to suffer from from panic attacks if anyone rang the doorbell. Uh, And so uh, my dad would just open, let himself in with the key, let himself in and say, it's only me. They are simple, reassuring words. Words of familiarity, words of love, which coupled here with don't be afraid, are designed to overcome shock and fear. You see, walking on water wasn't something Jesus did to to amaze his his disciple. Jesus isn't some magician who who performs magic tricks for, for applause. Instead, it's another sign of his absolute control and his absolute power over the world he has created. Many of you, I'm sure, will know that the sea in, in the Bible is a, is a symbol of, of chaos and, and fear. When we read in, in Revelation that in heaven there will be no more sea, makes some of us feel a bit sad if we love going to the seaside that there'll be no more sea. What it means is that there won't be any evil, there won't be any chaos and any turmoil. It's symbolic language. All that will be taken away in heaven. Because you see, the sea in the Bible is, is a symbol of restlessness and of, and of uncontrollable evil. And in the Old Testament, it's only God, we read, who can rule over the seas. He is the one, according to Job, who set its boundaries in place and said to the proud oceans, go no further. He is the one, according to the psalmist, who sits enthroned over the flood. And he is the one who stills the roaring of the seas. You see, Jesus comes here to his disciples in all his power and in all his comfort. And the disciples willingly take him into the boat. And interestingly, verse 21, immediately the boat reaches the shore where they were headed. Actually, if you read the commentaries here, that's a miracle in itself. There are two miracles going on here, not just Jesus walking on the water, but the fact that that boat immediately ended up at the shore. It's an example of what we read in verse 100 and, uh, Psalm 107. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Matthew Henry says, If we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, though the night be dark and the wind high, yet we may comfort ourselves with this, that we shall be at shore shortly and are nearer to it than we think we are. You see, the peace here is immediate. The strain stops straight away once Jesus is with them. I don't know 
your backgrounds or how old you are. Some of you might remember a few years ago now, some years ago, it used to be popular to say, let go and let Jesus. The idea that the Christian life is, is all about just, just letting Jesus take control and as believers we don't need to, to do anything. Well, it's true that we can't do anything uh, in terms of, of saving ourselves. Jesus must and has done that. But we do still need to make an effort in other ways. We do need to pursue holiness. We do need to live the Christian life. We do need to work out our salvation with fear and, and trembling. And so what we have in these verses isn't let go and let Jesus, but there is a real rest that comes immediately from having him in the boat with us. The straining stops straight away. And immediately, the haven was reached. So can I ask you this morning as I close, are you straining at the oars? Do you long for your straining to stop? You know, time and again, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, about the peace that only Jesus can give us. The psalmist in, in Psalm 73, he was, he was all churned up until he entered the sanctuary and he found God. Time and again we read that Jesus is our refuge, our retreat, our shelter and our safe place. We are all at sea until we find our haven in him. And you see... This little story, these few five, four verses, are such a picture. They're such a picture of what the Bible is all about. You see, Jesus doesn't just see our need and stand at a distance, does he? He comes to us. And that is the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't stay on his, on his mountain top in, in heaven, in his, his high and exalted place, having perfect communion with his Father. Instead, he saw his needy people, he saw you and me, and he came to us. And on the cross, he walked into the storm, and he walked into the darkness, and he did it all in order to rescue people like you. And me. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus is doing. And so the question to close for all of us this morning is do you want to be rescued? And do you want the immediate peace that Jesus can give you? That only Jesus can give you? You know, sometimes we're so, we're so stubborn, aren't we? We're so pig-headed. Perhaps you, perhaps you know people like this. Perhaps you are like this. And you would rather stay in your darkness. You would rather everyone in church or everyone around you knew that you're in a dark and miserable place. And you'd rather say, woe is me. Just everyone look at me and pay attention. You'd rather say, woe is me, than, than, than reach out uh, to find the peace that you can have. You'd rather everyone knew that you were in the middle of a storm 
rather than accept the peace that Jesus offers. It's interesting that Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus was about to pass the disciples by until they cried out to him and he climbed into the boat. Well, will you cry out to him this morning? Are you willing to take Jesus into your boat that the strain might stop, that he might bring you to his place of peace and his place of safety? Or are you content to let him pass you by? Let's pray.